Several months ago, when I was coming to the conclusion of our study on the Sermon on the Mount, I began thinking about what should we teach and preach on next. And as things unfolded with the coronavirus and the political unrest and all the things going across our country that we talked about last Sunday, I thought there would probably be no more appropriate and no more relevant book to study than 1 Corinthians. And even though this was written almost 2,000 years ago, it's probably just as relevant, just as appropriate, just as applicable as when it was originally written. So I'm looking forward to this study as God will guide us through his word and help us to understand what we need to understand to walk in wisdom. That's, that's really the theme of this book. If we were to take all 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians and boil them down to one challenge, one command, it would be this, walk in wisdom. We need wisdom today. You need it and I need it. We need wisdom on how to think. We need wisdom on knowing what to say. We need wisdom on knowing how to behave. And the Apostle Paul, as he writes this letter to his dear friends in the city of Corinth, he covers many issues that we're covering today. So if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll read the first nine verses. This is what I'll call an introduction to the walk in wisdom. Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus that you are enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So if we look at this introduction to the walk in wisdom or walking in wisdom, we'd probably break down these first nine verses, this introduction, in this way. First, context. Context is critical to understand where we are, who's writing, who is he writing to. That way we can make the proper application. Then there's calling. What is God calling us to do? What is God calling us to be? How is he calling us to think? This is part of wisdom. And then finally, commitment. How do we respond? He has called us to respond. And so we have context, calling, and commitment. Let's look first at the context of this walk in wisdom. Paul begins his letter to his friends in the same way most everyone else would in that day. Verse 1 says, Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, typically for us, if I'm, I'm going to write a letter to you, I'll put your name at the top and I'll sign my name at the bottom. But 
And in the culture there with the Greek language and people communicating with one another, they would always begin by, who, this is who's writing to you. And so Paul identifies himself, and really in a couple ways. Paul writes in, a, in a, what I would call a biographical tone. We're going to see in, in all of his letters that he is very confessional. He, he writes about his life. He, he gives examples. You, he's very transparent, which I love about him. And so you can come alongside Paul and learn with him and identify things with him. We'll learn a lot about him. He calls himself here as he identifies himself as an apostle. An apostle means literally one who is sent. And there were 12 who were sent. And uh, Paul came along later in, in a uh, born out of due time, he describes this, that, that he had a meeting with Jesus. And so we have no modern-day apostles. Apostles were someone who were sent directly by Jesus Christ himself. And so this is how he is introducing himself as an apostle. But I love the way he, he also speaks about Sosthenes, my brother. And everywhere Paul went, he had companions. And this doesn't just describe his need for a servant. Many times leaders and military leaders, political leaders would have uh, little people to run around and do things for them. But Paul was very different, and Jesus was too. He always had companions, and these were what we call his disciples. He would teach them and guide them and talk about everything in life. We don't know a lot about Sosthenes. Some speculate if he's the same one that is mentioned in other places. But we do know this, that Paul had a companion, and his companion was with him in this ministry. Paul is first introduced to us as the name Saul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. And we find this at the very end of Acts chapter 7. The church has begun. Uh, the church is spreading. And in, in chapter 7 of Acts, there's a very troubling scene where they're going to stone a man uh, to death. And that man's name is Stephen. He's what we call the first Christian martyr. And so when people would take their coats off and they'd lay them down and start stoning him, and they killed Stephen, they laid their coats down at the feet of a man named Saul. Saul was probably the principal persecutor of the church. And no one wreaked more havoc, did more damage, more destruction to the early church than did Saul, who later became Paul. But one day on the road to Damascus, and we find this in chapter 9 of Acts, he came face to face with Jesus. And Jesus made this comment. He said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. A prick was a, an ox goad. And he was saying that, that uh, Saul, you are, you're like kicking against that ox goad. And Paul just responded, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. And then he followed up with the question, what would you have me to do? Well, in Acts chapter 9, this man's life is totally transformed. He goes from the, the principal persecutor of the church to its greatest advocate and the apostle, the one sent, to the Gentiles. It's an amazing, amazing story. So, We'll see what happens with Paul is Paul is writing out of personal experience. It's not just knowledge that he has about Jesus. He is writing about personal experience that he's had with him. And he becomes 
the apostle, the sent one to the Gentiles. And if you, if you follow his journeys, Paul, Paul's on the road. <clears throat> he's a single guy. He has his followers, and he's on the road taking missionary journeys. If we were to take a map, and as I, I would picture Jerusalem and the area of Israel and going up to the north, uh, we get into where Paul actually grew up in Tarsus, and you get into Assyria uh, or Syria in that area. And then as, as we go over to the west, moving east to west, uh, you move, move into Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And, and then his journeys took him across where Istanbul is, used to be Constantinople, but that, that little area of uh, a bridge between the continents of Asia and Europe, he is going every place preaching the gospel, uh, establishing churches, teaching them the basics of Christianity, appointing elders and leaders and pastors, and then moving on. Then he'll circle back around to keep them encouraged. And along the way, he'll write letters. <clears throat> and this, uh, this church in Corinth, this body of people in Corinth, were recipients of four letters that we know of. Uh, this, this 1 Corinthians would be the second of these uh, the, the, the first and the third have been lost, but uh, the second and fourth, have, I hope I'm not too confusing on this, have been preserved <laughs> for us as our scriptures today. And God has his reason for that, for why these have been preserved and applicable today. But if you look at things geographically, uh, we're right in the middle of Greece. Corinth, the city, is right in the middle of Greece. And it, it's different from being right in the middle of Denver. In fact, uh, when, when our kids just traveled back from Palau this last week, they, they got back safely to the United States. Thank you for praying for them. Our, our three-year-old grandson is looking out uh, the window, and he says, where's the ocean? <laughs> He's so used to seeing the ocean. They left Palau, they go to Guam, they go to Honolulu, and uh, then they land in Denver. Where is the ocean? So it, it's a very different place. And when you look at this uh, geography of Greece, you can see a, a main part of Greece to the north and then a, a main part of Greece to the south, and it's connected by a little isthmus. And Diane and I stood there uh, several years ago looking from, from one sea off to our left to another sea off to our right. And, and what people would do is they would come and offload their ships, take their goods across that little piece of land, and put them on other ships to send them on to their destination, rather than sailing all the way around the south part of Greece where there are rocks and winds and storms that could, could be very destructive and be very uh, time-consuming. So this city, uh, Corinth, it is a Roman colony. Uh, it has Greek culture. It is cosmopolitan. People from all over the world are trading their goods. It's very wealthy. It's uh, the center of the Isthmus Games that are like the Olympic Games. So uh, a lot of wealth, a lot of uh, prestigious people were there, and a lot of wickedness, a lot of sinfulness. If you were to pick a city that you know that would be known for just all kinds of evil doing, it would be like this city, Corinth. In fact, uh, when people talk about being Corinthianized, it would be going the way of the devil. That became almost synonymous with the, the way that they would talk about this. So all of these things are in this city. And Paul goes into Corinth, and 
visits a synagogue, begins preaching to the Jews, Christ the Messiah has come, he died for your sins, he was buried, he rose again the third day, and he's offered to you the gift of eternal life. That's the gospel. And of course, as in most places, some believed, uh, some doubted, wanted to hear more, and some became uh, viciously against him and opposed him. Many places that Paul would, would go to, he would be beaten, he would be imprisoned, uh, even at times left for dead. And so there was quite a, a diverse reaction to his preaching of the gospel. However, this church got established, and Paul was there for a period of time teaching them, guiding them, helping them grow in the, the fundamentals of the Christian faith, the basic elements of God's word, appointing elders, and then he left, went to another city. In fact, Paul's intention was to go all the way to Spain, eventually just planting churches, circling back around, and keeping them encouraged. So <clears throat> he has planted this church. Now he's writing a letter uh, back to them. And he is addressing a particular issue. Some of, Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament that we have. <clears throat> Some of them are more general, like Romans is just like a full treatise of doctrine. It's just an, an amazing book. But 1 Corinthians is dealing with a problem. And you look around in our culture today, we've got the same problems. And that's what's so magnificent about God's Word is it is timeless in its ability to make application to where we're living. So the problem was that the church, the community of believers, they call the ecclesia, the, the community that gathered together, were increasingly being influenced by a worldly culture. Worldly, now you could say worldly in a good sense means that a person is aware of things around them. They have situation awareness. But worldly here really means they become like the culture of the, the godless culture of the world. And there's been a slow drift into this church, and they're starting to behave just like people who don't even know God. Now, I think that is where we find ourselves today in America. I think the, tr the church as a whole has been on a slow drift. As I said last week, is, it has become a cheap imitation of a failed system. Uh, we try to impress the world. We try to be like the world. And rather than having Jesus Christ imprinting his example upon our lives to be unique and different and set apart, we kind of morph into the world. And uh, I think that this is one thing to remember. We, we talked also last week about what we mean by world, uh, physical earth, uh, humanity. This, in this case, it is the godless system, the cosmos. So we're going to find that, that Paul's challenge is don't be conformed to the world system. Be conformed to Christ. Uh, the answer is not to be isolated from the world. You're not to, to just to get out of town and go find a place where no one else lives because he sent us into the world and we're to make a difference in the world. So not conformed nor isolated, but making a difference in the world. So this is a letter from a spiritual father to his children. And it's severe. I mean, he, he kind of, uh, he busts them on some things. That, but you can tell the, the overriding tone is a loving father correcting his children because he loves them and he doesn't want to see them damaged. 
in a continued path of really walking without wisdom. And that's why we, we come to the, the context of this message is calling people back to walk in godly wisdom and not the wisdom of the world. So he's writing probably A.D. 55, around that time, uh, from Ephesus, another church that he had planted that's in modern-day Turkey, and he's writing to his beloved dear friends and pleading with them to walk in wisdom. So that's the context, and, and we'll get into more of that as we uh, go through First Corinthians. The second um, part of this is, is really the call. He is calling them to holiness, or to we call sanctification, setting apart. Uh, the Greek word is hagias. It means, it means to be set apart. And this is the call. Look at verse 2. It says, to the church of God at Corinth, here's who he's writing to, sanctified in Christ, called as saints, with all those in every place who call the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. So we are called as saints. This is what I find really fascinating, is that he addresses these Christians who have really been living worldly, godless lives, just like the heathen, and he calls them saints. <laughs> You've been called as saints. And we would say, there's nothing saintly about them uh, at all. So how does he how does he call them saints? And, and this is because that is who they are. That is who they are. That is not how they're acting, but that is who they are. And I think that really what's happened is these young Christians have got into an identity crisis. Um, they don't really know who they are. And, and we function out of who we are. We, we function how we see ourselves. Now, what should really shape how I view myself and my personal identity, who is Matt Olson, it's who God says I am. It's not how I feel that day. You know, I can look in the mirror. I can think of many times in my life looking in the mirror and thinking, I am such a loser. <laughs> I could get really discouraged if I do intense self-evaluation. Uh, or I could go the other way. I could feel really proud and arrogant about myself. But, but I am not who I say I am, and I'm not who the world says I am. I'm who God says I am. As, as a child of God, I am who God says I am. And this is so critical for us to understand as believers is, is know who you are. And you are who God says you are. Don't be in this personal identity crisis. 2016, uh, Diane and I took the grandkids, this is, you know, four years ago, uh, to watch uh, Kung Fu Panda 3. <laughs> now, I don't know how many of you adults have watched that, but... It's pretty entertaining. So we go to this matinee um, of Kung Fu Panda 3, and, and uh, Poe, who's the star of the show, the panda who's the star of the show, he has this identity crisis. He is, he is so confounded and, and uh, upset, wondering who he is and where he fits. And, and he, he said in this part of the movie, he says, who am I? Who am I? And my grandson, I think he's probably a four at the time, stands up and shouts out, you're Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> of course, the whole place that erupted in laughter. But I think sometimes we need a reckoning as Christians of who we really are. 
Because we get into this, who am I? Because I'm looking all around at other people and what people are doing. I'm measuring myself by Facebook uh, images and things. And really, you know, things like social media are just a, a contrived and a false reality. And, and what happens is it, it, not, it doesn't just influence you. It begins to really shape how you view yourself and how you view everyone else. And this is what we're inundated with today. And I think we need a wake-up call as, as Paul is giving these, his children a wake-up call. Remember who you are. So what does it mean to be a saint? Uh, someone who is set apart for a purpose. And I think we're set, set apart in three ways. This is, this is just real quickly here because I think it helps understand how we're made holy. Uh, first, we're made holy immediately. When, when Jesus Christ comes into your life, when, when you recognize you're a sinner, you need Christ, you invite him into your life, he washes away your sins, and he adopts you into his family. You become holy. You become set apart to him. You are holy, positionally, and, and immediately. Secondly, we are being made holy progressively. In other words, over a period of time as you grow, you are being setting apart to Christ, setting apart to Christ, less and less like the world, less and less like your old self. You have been created as a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. And so part of being holy is this ongoing struggle of transformation and change. And that's, that's where we live today. Uh, we're growing, becoming more like Christ. And thirdly, it is ultimately, it is when holiness is complete, and that's when we get to heaven. Now, I wish it happened earlier. <laughs> I think all of us wish it happened earlier. But it happens when we get to heaven, and when, when we are with him, we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And it was so amazing that when we get to heaven, there'll be no more uh, the flesh, the old nature. We'll have new bodies. We'll have, we'll, we won't sin. We won't be around any sin. Uh, we will be perfect in that sense. And so... Those three dimensions of it are important to understand. I function, though, out of who I am. He has made me to be a child of him. Uh, a really good exercise, and this is kind of a, a side note, is go through Ephesians chapter 1 and read everything that God says about you, who you are. So if you're having an identity crisis, who am, am I? For, for example, it says in, in uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians, you're blessed, you're chosen, you're holy, you're blameless, you're predestined, adopted, you're sons and daughters, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're rich, you're sealed, you're given the Holy Spirit, you're redeemed, you're alive, you're raised up from the dead, you are God's workmanship and his masterpiece, you are fellow citizens, and you are members of God's household. That is who you are. And the day you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that is who you became, a child of God adopted into his family. Now, here's the challenge. Be who you are. Walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Walk in a way that reflects who you are in Christ. We're set apart. So I think this, that when I look at uh, verses 3 to 7, he says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace and peace. He says you, in, later in verse 5, he says you have been enriched in him in every way. 
in all speech and all knowledge. In other words, he has given you everything you need to live this life. Think about that. He gives you everything you need to walk in wisdom. He reminds them of their past. Grace was given to you. He's made you rich in every way. It, it reminds me of a little verse tucked away in Proverbs. There's so many great Proverbs, but Proverbs 9 and verse 10. You've got to write this down because I think it's just good to go back to. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now, that, that's a power-packed verse. It talks about knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. That's really the full orb of what we're talking about. When we talk about walking wisdom, it is knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Knowledge is knowing the facts. Wisdom is being able to apply the facts. Understanding is looking back, having applied the facts. You understand what that does. And this is Paul's experience. He had a knowledge of Jesus. He had the wisdom of how he is the Messiah. And now, as he has put his faith and trust, he's experienced so that he has personal understanding. So, context. The context is, this is written 2,000 years ago to a place on the other side of the earth, to a people that we've never met. But same issues, same human nature, same God, same Christ. There's nothing really new under the sun. That's context. The call is God is calling you to be who you are, to be holy to live a life that is walking in wisdom. And then finally, we have commitment. And I think this is beautiful how this is penned in verses 8 and 9. He says, He'll also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with His Son. And, and then he goes on and, uh, uh, and talks about how all of this is done through Christ. And then if we go back to verse 2, Remember what it said? It says, we are called as saints with all those in every place who call on the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. So you have two callings here. He has called me. I call on him. I want you to see this, that dynamic. He calls me to holiness. Instantaneous, adopted as a son. He calls me to walk in holiness in a practical way in life. He's going to call me to holiness in heaven. He calls me. And then it says here, to those who call on him, we receive this. So he, God does the work. I respond in faith to own it. To me, it's beautiful how that's portrayed. And how do we do that? I'd like to, as I wrap this up, is to leave you with this. How can I day-to-day -day walk in wisdom? He says he's enriched us with everything that we need. Um, how does he do that? There are really what we call two means of grace, ways that God works in your life to bring this about. One is prayer, and two is the Word of God. And prayer, I think we begin by, how do I get wisdom? James uh, says in chapter 1, verse 5, uh, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, that would be me, <laughs> that would be you. If any of you lack wisdom, Ask of God. And he gives generously and does not hold back. So the way to become a wise person, 
to walk in the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world, is to ask God for it. Uh, I, I can't remember a day I haven't asked God for that. I used to ask the Lord, give me wisdom beyond my years, and now I'm kind of older. <laughs> I still pray that uh, <clears throat> because I need it. You ask for wisdom. Secondly is through the Word. And, you know, most of you have a copy either digitally or you have a Bible. And it's not just reading it. Um, it's reading it and asking three questions. One, what is the saying? What does it say? You read it, you stop. What does that say? Second question is, what does it mean? What does this mean? What did it mean in Corinth? What does it mean today in Denver? But what does it mean here? How is the Holy Spirit of God really working his word here? So when I ask what does it mean, what it says, it says one thing, what it means it doesn't mean many things. It means one thing, but it applies to Corinth, to Denver, but personally. And then the third question is, how am I going to respond? How am I going to respond to what God has really brought to bear upon my heart? He's, he's hit, hit a nerve with me, just like Paul's hitting a nerve with his children. And um, when I think back, his main concern his main concern is that these people quit moving toward the world to where they're no different, they're not making a difference at all, back to walking in wisdom. It's not so much of changing Corinth that he's interested in. It's changing the church in Corinth. I think the greatest need in America today is not for God to change our government or to change the culture, or to change Hollywood, or to change the educational system, but to change the church, to come back to what he created the church to be. And I believe this, that when the church becomes what it is intended to be and walks in wisdom, that all of those other things will change. For 14 years, I was a Christian. I invited Jesus Christ into my life. I um, went to church. I acknowledged God. I prayed before meals. But I had never really experienced the transforming, daily transforming power of God's Word in my life. I've shared this before. I don't get tired of sharing it. <clears throat> but I had a friend who encouraged me to start reading my Bible every day. And it was in 1 Corinthians when I got to chapter 10, one night sitting on the front porch, I read these words, and whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Now, what did that, what did that mean? Well, Paul was talking to the people in Corinth about how they were eating their food, and he said, do this to God's glory, not to self-indulge. That's what he meant. Now, what does it mean today? Same thing. Do everything. For God's pleasure, not yours. But when I got to the third question, how does that apply to my life? What's God speaking to me? It really, it, it, I, I felt smitten by God. I was so broken when I started to, to think about what that meant. I had lived my whole life for me. That, that, that was a description. Everything I wanted to do, it was all about me. 
And, and so, <clears throat> you know, we get to this last question, and I wasn't thinking of these three questions at the time, but, but I put my Bible down, I went to bed that night, and I was so troubled. The next night, I got up to start reading the next chapter, chapter 11, I couldn't even read it. I, I go back to 1031, and it says, it's like, Matt, I'm asking you to change the way you live. I want you to start living for my glory and not yours. And that's the first time that I can remember, aside from when I became a Christian, that God's word began to really change me. And I remember going into my room, kneeling down on my bed, and I said, Lord, as best as I can, that's going to be my chief aim. And I, I wish I could tell you I've li lived that perfectly, and I haven't. But I said, this will be my chief aim, to live my life for the glory of God. And the next night, I read chapter 11, verse 1, and Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And I, that's been my life since. You know, you follow Christ, invite someone to come along and do that. And that's walking in wisdom. That's walking in wisdom. When Jesus said to Paul, follow me, to the others, follow me, and Paul is saying to others, follow me, we're walking in wisdom. That's what this world needs. That's what you need. So when we're stressed out about what do I, what am I to think about all that's going on? What am I to say? What am I to do? You walk in wisdom. The two means of grace that God gives to you are prayer, you ask for it, and his word. It will change your life. And my prayer is this, that, that the truth of this text and of all that he is saying to us here will just work over our souls in a very powerful way. God, we pray that your word would find place in our hearts and stir us up to respond to this. Help us to see the context of our lives, where we're placed today, the calling upon us to be holy and to walk in wisdom. And Lord, the commitment that we need to make that this will be our choice to follow you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.